welcome to People, Places, Planet Pod, the official podcast of the Environmental Law Institute, a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization working to ensure a healthy environment, prosperous economies, and vibrant communities founded on the rule of law. Hello and welcome to another episode of People, Places, Planet Podcast. My name is Dominic Shikitano, and I'm a research associate here at the Environmental Law Institute, or ELI. ELI has partnered with Sidley Austin LLP to launch a new podcast series called The Enforcement Angle. This year-long series will feature conversations about state and federal enforcement of environmental laws and regulations with senior enforcement officials and thought leaders on environmental enforcement in the United States and globally. The host of this series is Justin Savage. Justin is a partner and the global co-leader of the environmental practice at Sidley Austin LLP. From 2004 to 2013, Justin served as senior counsel and a trial attorney for the Environmental Enforcement Section of the U.S. Department of Justice's Environment and Natural Resources Division. On today's episode, Justin speaks with Todd Sachs, who is the chief of the Enforcement Division of the California Air Resources Board, referred to in shorthand as the ARB or CARB. CARB is commonly recognized as one of the world's preeminent air pollution control agencies. Thanks, Justin, for coming on today for another installment of the Enforcement Angle. Thanks, Dominic. And this is uh, Justin Savage. We're really excited to have Todd Sachs with us today. How are you doing, Todd? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. Cool. And before we talk about CARB, let's just talk about you, including where you grew up, favorite hike, or anything else that might just give the audience a sense of a little bit about yourself. Sure. Well, I grew up in the East San Francisco Bay in Lafayette, California. I went to Claremont McKenna College. I actually went in as an accounting major and came out with a major in economics and environmental policy. Uh, then I went to graduate school at UCLA. I'm not a lawyer, and incidentally, neither are CARB enforcement staff. Um, I have a doctorate in environmental science and engineering. I have three kids, a 16-year-old teenager, Andy, and twin almost 12-year-olds, a boy, Justin, and a girl, Clara. So until COVID, my life was full of soccer, and now our lives are full of Zoom. <laughs> All of their <laughs> classes are currently remote, and it's been quite an adjustment. Other than that, I play guitar, ukulele, and piano, none of them very well, and I'm learning U-Bass. So that's a bit about me. Wow. And, and just because I know you're from the Bay Area, let me put you on the spot here. Are you an Oakland Athletics fan, a Giants fan, or neither? I'm actually a Niner fan. I grew up going to games as a kid, and we used to sit on the uh, row uh, 21 in the visitor side of the stands. And so I went to every game in 1981 with my dad, except for the NFC Championship game with the catch, which my mom insisted on going to. <laughs> Well, look, I hope you've resolved those issues with your mother because I would be pretty upset by that. Um, but, you know, given this just background and you, you sound like you are a multi-talented person with music, you have sports in your life, and just, you know, walk us through how you came to CARB and just how you've progressed in the organization. Sure. So I joined CARB in about June of 2000 after working in an environmental affairs department at an aerospace company in Los Angeles for five years. When I joined CARB, I did so in part to finish my doctoral dissertation at UCLA. Uh, the environmental science and engineering program at UCLA that I was studying under 
uh, required students to write their dissertation based on real-world work at an institution, and I chose CARB. I worked in the early days of our environmental justice program, focusing on emissions inventories and models to assess exposure to air pollution in low-income minority communities near emission sources. As I was finishing my dissertation, I was burnt out and decided to leave CARB, and so I spent maybe a year and a half in consulting. Um, but in the end, I wasn't um, as interested in consulting as I thought I'd be, so I returned to CARB as a staff person. Um, I was promoted to manager in charge of mobile source inventories behind CARB rules, and then promoted again to run the branch at CARB in charge of developing mobile source emissions estimates for all uses at CARB. But during that period, we redeveloped the MFAC model and developed the technical analysis behind all of CARB's diesel rules, impacting ocean-going vessels to trucks. So in the end, even though I, I left being an accounting major, I ended up doing environmental accounting. <laughs> uh, so I got a lot of experience in management through the process. And in CARB's mobile source regulatory programs that are the backbone of much of our work. And that branch was split between Sacramento and El Monte, so once I got this job, I traveled pretty frequently to work with the El Monte staff. I've been going down there several times a month for more than 10 years until COVID hit. In 2013, I was promoted to assistant division chief over CARB's mobile source control division. And that was a real learning experience for me. The division is extremely busy and quite effective. It also had something like 15 different regulation and incentive programs go to the board in one year. It was exhausting and I learned a lot about what to do and what not to do. And then in 2015, I was promoted to uh, Chief of Carbs Enforcement Division. It's been quite a ride. Um, Volkswagen hit right after I got the job. I had known about the testing and I had attended uh, CRC meetings where the results of the vehicle testing had been discussed. I knew it looked bad, but didn't think I would be involved, and then I got the enforcement job. Um, while staff had been evaluating vehicle emissions scientifically, the emission of a defeat device was a shock and had a profound impact on the agency. And I've been working in the enforcement division ever since. Um, I also spent uh, 10 years as chair of the local motherload chapter of the Air and Waste Management Association here in Sacramento. And I'm currently teaching an environmental science class at Sacramento State University. So listening to that, Todd, here's my question. When do you find time to sleep? You've got twins, another kid, you're AWMA active, and you're doing all this stuff at CARB. So just be very candid. Are we looking at three to four hours a night? Uh, no, I actually sleep pretty well, but I work a lot on weekends. And what I would say is um, the CARB staff, myself included, are all really dedicated. And a lot of us work that hard because we really care about the mission and what we're doing. And, and when you just think back to your projects that you've worked on, you know, you have kids. I was in enforcement. I had kids, and most of the time they could care less. I mean, was VW the first case where your kids actually ask questions about work, or are they engaged and want to know more about what dad's up to? Um, you know, they're really interested in soccer and other things. I don't know that they care that much about what I do, but um, you know, when uh, they were certainly aware of what was going on with Volkswagen and with the the recent press surrounding the the Daimler case, they're they're definitely aware of what I do now. All right, have you ever taken them to work and check out like a dyno testing lab or anything like that, or is that just something they're not interested in at all? Yeah, you know, um, CARB has a, a take your child to work day um, every year, and when the kids were younger, I would take them and we would go to that at, at um, our building in Sacramento. And what was really cool about it is in the early days when 
Zevs were just becoming a thing, electric cars and fuel cell cars. Um, some of the early Tesla Roadsters were there when there were only a few on the road. Um, some early fuel cell vehicles. Nowadays, when you go, there are electric trucks and, and all kinds of stuff. Um, so they, I think, got a pretty interesting education in environmental issues early on. Yeah, that, that's awesome. And just listening to you and all the work you've done, I think you were, used the word exhausting. I mean, it sounds exhausting just in terms of everything's CARB doing is doing you know i know carbs issued an enforcement policy recently to try to explain to folks uh what it does but for people who are not as familiar with arb or carb just at a high level how does its enforcement program work sure so when i came into the office about five years ago one of the things i really wanted to do was to provide more transparency to our program and so uh, we went through a process of expanding our existing penalty policy to a, a broader enforcement policy. And we did this through a public process, which may be considered unconventional among some agencies, but not at CARB. Um, at CARB, we do try to involve the public in meaningful ways. And in the development of that policy, we had both industry and environmental organizations participate and comment. We defined our goal as compliance. We know our regulations are only effective when regulated entities meet the requirements. We want to encourage compliance, deter non-compliance, and bring non-compliant entities into compliance. Uh, that's what we do. So this isn't about money for us, it's about public health. We ended up expanding our discussion of the enforcement process. Anybody can download our policy, read it, and understand how we do our work. Uh, we want to be transparent. And the policy encourages discussion between enforcement staff and the regulated community in ways that I think are helpful. Um, we developed more expansive voluntary disclosure and minor violations frameworks for case settlement. Uh, we want our focus, our, our enforcement efforts to focus on achieving compliance. And so if somebody voluntarily discloses and comes into compliance quickly, we want to encourage that because then that allows us to focus our efforts elsewhere. And we reduce penalties for those as appropriate, given the severity of the violations relative to factors we consider. Um, we made explicit commitments to work towards environmental justice through outreach, focused enforcement, and our supplemental environmental uh, projects program. Um, ultimately, the policy exudes the values that I want our staff to uphold. Honesty, transparency, fairness, sound judgment, continuous improvement, all with a focus on achieving and maintaining industry-wide compliance in every regulation that achieves the emissions benefits that the CARB staff who developed the regulations have worked so hard to try to achieve. Yeah, that, that, that's just a terrific o overview. And just touching on a few things you mentioned, Todd, you mentioned Supplemental Environmental Projects, or SEPs, which are in Appendix C of the enforcement policy. It's well known that the Assistant Attorney General for the Environment and Natural Resources Division, a mild division at DOJ issued a policy banning supplemental environmental projects or uh, SEPs. Uh, and can you, and this is uh, the memo by Jeff Clark, can you just you know touch on from your perspective what you see as the benefits of SEPs from your chair? Yeah, so when we revamped our supplemental environmental projects program, one of the things we tried to do was to identify projects that benefit uh, disadvantaged communities. And these are communities, um, low-income communities, uh, often communities of color, places where there are a lot of emission sources. 
um, and where the impacts of air pollution can be greatest. So what we try to do is um, allow responsible parties to contribute up to 50% of their penalty to projects that are proposed by these community groups that are designed to provide to designed to try to help address air pollution specifically in their communities. Uh, well, we we think that's a you know we think it's a really important program. It's very helpful um, to these community groups, and honestly, um, we think that these types of projects are valuable. And so you know, California I think does not agree with the the federal position on SEPs. Um, and and we think our program is very effective. And can you give us just a sense of, without getting into specific case matters, which I don't think would necessarily be be helpful, but just from your perspective, some of the SEPs that have uh, that CARB has entered into over the years to give people a sense of uh, what what these look like on the ground, so to speak. Sure. So just last year, we diverted six million in penalties to a variety of projects that improve air quality in schools by installing high efficiency particle controls um, that provide asthma related services to community members um, and educational programs. Um, we're also working to expand the program by getting more community involvement and to look, for example, at um, measuring emissions or air quality um, at greater levels of specificity within communities to try to figure out the best ways to improve air quality there. So I really do think the program can be a great catalyst um, for problem solving and, and making positive change in these places. I mean, that, that's fascinating. I think it's to be applauded and a little editorial content. I do not believe that most people in the regulated community are in favor of banning SEP. So at least as a citizen, I applaud CARB continuing to go forward and do that. And looking at the policy a little bit more in depth, I mean, I tried to count. Uh, it looks like CARB has over 50 enforcement programs listed in Appendix A, everything from commercial harbor craft to tire pressure inflation, which I didn't even know that was out there. But obviously, the, the tire pressure you've got or the rolling resistance affects uh, the amount of greenhouse gas you get out of a, a tailpipe. Given that broad jurisdiction, how do you prioritize as the chief uh, cases that you think deserve attention? Uh, you know, that's a really good question. Um, to some extent, I rely on my staff to do that work because they're, you know, first of all, I have um, almost 190 full and part-time staff in the division. and they're broken up into different branches that work on different parts of, of our programs. So for example, I've got a branch that works on what are, you know, product requirements or loosely termed certification that applies to engines and aftermarket parts and, and vehicles and hairspray and other consumer products and composite wood products. So there's a broad range of, of that work and that's just one branch. We have a whole nother branch that looks at enforcing our, heavy-duty diesel rules that apply to, you know, millions of, of vehicles and equipment. So our enforcement approaches are designed differently depending on the nature of the program. So we'll look, for example, for um, enforcement cases in the, in the certification or product requirements areas where we can really have the most deterrence. And in the 
diesel world where our compliance rates weren't necessarily where they needed to be, we really worked on trying to improve efficiency, take advantage of administrative procedures within the division, and now we're looking to, regu to uh, really leverage technology to try to find ways to be more efficient in the work we do because sometimes deterrence is about individual cases and sometimes deterrence is about a, a credible threat of being caught. But really what we're trying to do is measure compliance in each program and develop the tools, approaches, and cases that are necessary to, to try to get at 100% compliance in each program. So thanks, Todd. I think that's helpful as an overview in terms of prioritization. And you mentioned trying to benchmark where you think an industry might be in terms of compliance. You know, just walk us through at a higher level how you would compare notes uh, with U.S. EPA on where you think compliance is in particular industry sectors for programs where uh, ARB and EPA share regulatory and enforcement authority. Yeah. So our our staff meets regularly with EPA staff, both at a technical level with the staff in Ann Arbor and um, at an enforcement level with the staff in Region 9 and in Washington. Um, and I'd say that, you know, our relationship with EPA is actually really effective. Um, we do work very closely together on cases. Um, we do have very different approaches, I would say, for how we address the enforcement side of things. But I do think um, you know, CARB often learns from what EPA does, and I'd like to think that EPA uh, sometimes learns from what we do as well. Yeah, I think that's that's just fascinating, uh, and it's a result of our federalist system. You mentioned a couple cases, VW, Daimler, uh, that obviously involve companies that have parent corporations overseas. And without getting into particular cases, if it makes you uncomfortable, can you just share, you know, what if anything? Uh, CARB does to coordinate or learn from uh, regulators in other jurisdictions in terms of enforcement, whether it's in EU or China or other places outside of the U.S.? Well, CARB has done a lot of outreach with different countries in an effort to try to um, help, I guess, spread the word on policies for, for climate change and air quality. Um, and I would say we haven't done a lot of that outreach directly um, from enforcement purposes, but for example, we have a staff person who's gone back to China and given several talks about um, showing how we do enforcement, for example, for ocean-going vessels. Um, and those talks have been pretty effective about sort of engaging um, the engaging China and trying to enforce um, ocean-going vessel requirements. And, you know, talking about China and other issues, you know, we're obviously seeing in the news a lot climate change, a global issue. And particularly in California, it's getting a lot of media coverage both there and nationally because of the wildfires. Just from your, your chair, you know, how can CARB enforcement help address climate change? Uh, well, definitely climate change is real, and unfortunately, um, right now, the state of California is quite literally on fire. It's been a tough year for a lot of people, but, um, you know, we enforce CARB rules focused on reducing greenhouse gases. Um, our rules focus on everything from mobile sources like cars and trucks to fuels and stationary sources ranging from gas-insulated switchgear equipment to landfills, oil and gas facilities, 
mandatory reporting for our cap and trade program and other programs. Um, so we do a lot of work just as we would on our um, criteria pollutant programs to focus on our greenhouse gas programs as well. Um, try to make sure that everybody complies with those requirements. Um, my staff themselves didn't have much of a role, but CARB's legal office recently played a substantial role in holding Southern California gas accountable uh, through a nuisance claim for the major methane leak at the Aliso Canyon facility, working alongside the Attorney General's office and our local partners. And 26 million of the total 119 million settlement um, is going to mitigate excess emissions from that facility by capturing methane using methane digesters at dairies in California's Central Valley. So that's great work and it's also an example of where um, enforcement can be used broadly to try to affect change that can have a real impact on, on trying to move the ball forward on addressing climate change. Yeah, and ha have you ever personally seen a digester at a large farm? Uh, it's, I don't know that it's something you'd want to stand really close to if you've got a sensitive set of nostrils. Uh, yeah, so, well, you know, <laughs> we have in, in California, you know, there are concentrated animal feeding operations up and down along um, I-5, for example, and, and, and 99 that runs through the Central Valley of our state. And, you know, those facilities, when they're not enclosed, put off a lot of odors as well. So there's a lot of challenges with odor control. And we're hopeful that the types of equipment that we would install at these facilities also have an ancillary benefit for people who live around them in terms of odors. And you mentioned odor control, and I know that uh, environmental justice is a priority. And looking at your recent enforcement report, I saw some mention of odor control as one of the areas where you really tried to uh, address environmental justice concerns. But can you just walk us through what you and your staff are doing to address EJ concerns? Sure. So CARB is really focused on making sure that everyone breathes clean air. And that includes low-income and minority populations who, through no fault of their own, live in areas that are disproportionately impacted by air pollution. Um, part of historical concerns about environmental justice are rooted in a belief that enforcement efforts were not a priority in these areas. And so we've worked to make environmental justice a strong priority in our enforcement division. When I first came into the job five years ago, we asked for volunteers in the division to start attending local community group meetings across the state. I wanted to build a relationship with these communities, better understand their concerns, and get staff up to speed on these issues. A few years later, California's landmark bill AB 617 was passed, which creates a new process for community groups to work with local air districts and CARB to have their concerns addressed in specially selected communities each year. In this new paradigm, CARB and the districts present a three-year enforcement history so that community groups know what has been done and what hasn't been done in their community. And then an enforcement plan is integrated into a broader community emission reduction plan, and these plans are implemented. So um, then in addition, we have our supplemental environmental projects program that we talked about uh, before. Uh, thanks, Todd. I think that really opens people's eyes and uh, something that I think is a priority particularly in California and historically has been a priority, uh, you know, for, for EPA and some other agencies. I mean, switching tack a little bit, you mentioned having three kids. Uh, I think everyone's experiencing both personal and professional challenges due to COVID. And, you know, some people, I've got close friends that are having to run schools basically out of their homes and also have full-time 
uh, jobs. But just looking at it from the perspective of your your job, how has just COVID nineteen affected uh, CARB, and how have you, if at all, adjusted enforcement in light of the pandemic? Yeah, COVID's had a had a really profound impact on us. Um, you know, it became clear in early March that our work was going to be impacted by the virus. Um, and in the division, we started developing contingency plans for everyone to telework. And then we made that transition in mid-March. So just over the course of about a week or so. Working from home is a real challenge for our programs for all the reasons you talked about. You know, our staff have, have children. The schools are closed. Everybody's trying to do this by Zoom. Um, it's fairly easy for my wife and I because our kids are are a little bit older and they're they're good at participating in these types of Zoom classes, but I don't know what I would do if we had a kindergartner. And I have staff who <laughs> are having a very difficult time with all of this. Um, from a professional standpoint at work, you know, part of our program, you know, we issue permits and or registrations, I guess, and that's based on just basic mail processes. So we still have staff rotating through the office. Um, our enforcement programs fortunately don't rely or even primarily rely on field inspections. So our enforcement work is continuing, though our productivity has been impacted to some extent. And on inspections, we work with we worked with our health and safety staff to institute new procedures and personal protective equipment to help keep our staff safe when working in the field. Once we put those procedures in place, we started sending staff out again. We aren't back to 100% of our field presence, but this week our staff are inspecting trucks and diesel equipment, testing new enforcement tools in the field, inspecting auto repair shops and dealerships, inspecting landfills and other sources. So we are out there. Um, COVID has really also pointed out how important air quality management and enforcement of air quality regulations really is. Lower income and minority populations are exposed to more air pollutants by virtue of where they live, are more likely to ride transit, more likely to have jobs where telecommuting is not an option. And the science, not just California, but nationally, is suggesting that these populations are at higher risk of death due to COVID because potentially of their historical exposures to air pollution and other environmental stressors. The people of California expect reasonable, uh, expect responsible parties to continue to comply with environmental regulations during the pandemic, and they expect me and my staff to do our jobs as well. For the most part, everyone is able to maintain compliance. As a matter of policy, if people are having trouble complying due to the pandemic, we will work with them. There have been some legitimate issues people have experienced. This pandemic is unprecedented in our world in my lifetime, and everyone is just trying to figure it out. Part of that for CARB and frankly for industry is for us all to do our jobs when it matters most. And for, for companies or individuals that may be facing compliance challenges and want to reach out to CARB, you know, what guidance do you provide? Because I know in talking to other state regulators, they've had some issues with people filing blanket requests for waivers of applicable regulations, which I don't think is a good strategy from either the perspective of the regulated community or the regulator. So for folks who may be experiencing legit challenges, what guidance could you offer them? Yeah, early on in the pandemic, uh, CARB got a lot of requests for sort of blanket relief along the lines of what you were asking for. And our answer generally was no. 
but we have run across cases where there are legitimate issues um, that companies and industries are facing. And when we do see those and, and there's a, a solid case for it, we work with them to try to come up with a solution that um, is as public health protective as possible, as possible but also uh, acknowledging the reality on the ground. Uh, yeah, I think that that's that's helpful. And you know, speaking of of seeing a lot of companies, I think just in your role generally, you see companies and individuals from across the spectrum of both California nationally and internationally, because California is the seventh largest economy, and CARB does have some unique jurisdictional features. So, what from your perspective, what are some characteristics of a robust compliance program for those wanting to avoid? Uh, the enforcement division at ARB. You know, it's it's funny. Carbs enforcement program does focus on bringing companies into compliance and then taking penalties. And typically, we don't spend a lot of time evaluating corporate compliance programs. For example, um, my interest though has been piqued by the good work that US EPA and the Department of Justice do on corporate compliance in their cases. And honestly, that's an area where I think Carb can learn from them. Uh, in California, compliance is based on strict liability for environmental laws. Um, it's very rare we try to prove negligence or knowing and willful violations, though we can do so when appropriate. Um, a lot of what I've learned about compliance culture I picked up in the private sector, and those lessons still drive me today. The company I worked for um, in the mid-90s uh, really seemed to value environmental and health and safety compliance, and I think culture is really important. Uh, 20 years ago, I learned that having a culture of compliance, valuing it, is is critical. I remember conducting exposure studies on staff um, who were uh, using a beryllium solder or cleaning semiconductor manufacturing parts in a process that released arsenic or chrome plating or degreasing operations using chlorofluorocarbons. That company had a dedicated safety, health, and environmental affairs department um, that was empowered to audit the safety and compliance of manufacturing lines and laboratories and to order changes as necessary. I was still working on my master's degree program in public health and I was able to conduct these audits. It was a really powerful experience for me and I'm really grateful for the time I spent at that company. Another element is separation. The environmental compliance teams need to have a separate reporting structure than the profit-oriented profit portions of the company, especially in large companies. You don't want to create an incentive for non-compliance by asking a manager to choose between profits and compliance. Compliance really has to come first. It's the law. Finally, I think you need capable and trained staff to focus on achieving and maintaining compliance. They need to know what the requirements are and not be afraid to ask if there are questions. That actually, it turns out, is really hard because there are so many regulations to keep up with. Um, at the company I was working with um, in the mid-90s, we subscribed to a service that helped keep us informed. and We participated in public agency processes also to keep abreast of what was happening. Um, and then finally, I would say when I was working in that aerospace company, I had a question about an emissions inventory when I was developing for a, for a toxics risk assessment. And I called CARB back in 1998 and ended up talking to one of the staffers there. When I joined CARB in 2000, that staffer remembered me and I remembered him. I had learned a lot from him and later he became one of my best and most creative direct reports. You know, there's a lot of value in communication and I think um, communication between industry and 
and regulators is important to make sure everyone's clear on what the requirements are. I also think that regulating agencies have a responsibility to make sure that regulated parties um, are at least exposed to information about how to comply and that that assistance is provided. Yeah, that's helpful and I think your enforcement report laid out something like 50 or so compliance training programs that CARB offers. So taking your answer, you know, what, what makes good compliance from your perspective, let's look at the opposite of that. You, what are some of the common mistakes that you see just from your observation when companies come in to CARB on an enforcement issue? Yeah, obviously at CARB, um, we have the opportunity to see more than our fair share of non-compliance. Um, and sometimes staff at CARB, especially the longtime staffers, feel like manufacturers can't be trusted because they've been lied to repeatedly over the years. So the first thing I would say is don't lie to us. Um, pollution control is a partnership between the regulators and the regulated. Dishonesty poisons the well. And, and frankly, I work with a lot of smart people. We figure it out. Um, I would say resist any relationship between profits and compliance. Compliance has to come first. If there's any question about whether something is being done that isn't on the up and up, you shouldn't do that thing. Um, or at least consult with somebody and figure out how to do what you want to do, but do it legally. The lines sometimes between compliance and non-compliance aren't the brightest, and sometimes they can be gray. But, there are, but those lines are there for a reason, and when you take a step back, they aren't very hard to see. If you're not disclosing software impacting a vehicle because you're afraid of what the regulators would say or don't care what they think, well, that's dumb. Uh, we should all be working towards the same goal. I know that's naive, I wanna, but I wanna believe the best in people. Um, at least if you're in an automotive company and you're making some of these decisions, you should be looking at the auto companies that have violated the laws of California in the United States and were caught and thinking, is this choice worth hundreds of millions to billions of dollars to my company, as well as a tarnished public reputation with, with their customers? Um, it's just not worth it. Our enforcement program is designed to try to measure the severity of the violation and penalize as appropriate. That's really what our enforcement policy was about when we amended it. Um, but it is the responsible party's job to be responsible and maintain compliance in the first place. So I would say do that. That's helpful. And, you know, you certainly have mentioned it as part of our just our discussion, some cases that have uh, recently made the news, Todd. But, you know, my impression, and this may be jaded because of the age of my kid is, kids, is that public service isn't necessarily as attractive or cool, and even saying cool makes me sound dated, as it used to be. You know, how would you encourage younger folks uh, to get involved in public service, whether it's CARB, other environmental agencies, or other forms of public service? Well, I guess what I could say is, um, just from my own personal experience, I've worked in the private sector, I've taught classes in university, I've been a consultant, and I've been a staffer at CARB. And what I would say is that, that if you are serious about changing the world, cleaning the air, addressing climate change, and just generally solving the world's problems, then you want to be at CARB. And, you know, it sounds a little hokey, but I'm not joking. I am never bored. I work on a huge diversity of issues. I'm empowered to continuously improve. We have access to amazing technologies. And while sometimes CARB staff do drive each other nuts um, and working in a bureaucracy can be frustrating, 
My colleagues are, are incredibly bright and effective. California is leading the nation in the world, and I'm honored to be a part of it. So come work for us. We're awesome. <laughs> so thanks so much for providing us some of your time. We know you're, you're very busy and your time is scarce. So thanks, Todd. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to People, Places, Planet Pod, brought to you by the Environmental Law Institute. We would like to hear from you. So please send us your questions, comments, and ideas to podcast at ELI.org. And if you're interested in learning more about our work, attending one of our events, reading our publications, or becoming a member, please visit our website at www.eli.org.